about 12 or 13 years ago, um, I had one of the best weeks of my life. I had the opportunity on a Monday to go in this recording studio in Nashville and record with Gordon Moat and some of the big players in Nashville, and it was just really, really special. And then the next day, I drove from Nashville to Henryville, Indiana, where Bob was leading a minister's mentoring retreat at Country Lake Retreat Center. And I spent um, three or four days there just learning and soaking up as much as I could and being spoiled rotten with a lot of incredible gifts. And I remember uh, one night, I can't remember which night it was, Bob took all of us ministers that were there to Ruth's Chris restaurant. And I don't know how much that, that probably came to eleven, twelve hundred dollars anyway for just a, a handful of us to eat. And, and I uh, was blessed to have a seat next to Bob. And Bob, you probably don't remember this even happening. But he leans over to me and he says, Ron, have you, have you tried the calamari? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't really do seafood all that much. And Bob's like, okay. Second time he leans over, he goes, Ron, you really ought to try that calamari. I'm like, ah, just not a seafood guy at all. Well, the guy sitting next to me heard it all going on. He goes, Ron, I've heard you don't tell Bob Russell no. I've heard that. And uh, so the third time, Bob says, really, it's pretty good. You ought to try it. I'm like, okay, I'll try it. And, and honestly, I'm so glad you stuck with it. It's the best squid I ever had in my life. It was, it was really, really good. But the thing that, that the reason I share that with you is because, you know, we kind of went into this retreat with this idea that um, Bob was this guy that was like here. And talent-wise and the way the Lord has used him, it is. But I think what makes him such a vessel and a great communicator of the Lord is his humility. And it, it, it wasn't like what we thought it was at all. He's just a person who loves Jesus and loves his wife, loves his family, and loves to preach the word. And I'm absolutely honored to be able to call him a friend. And I'm honored that he would come and be with us today. So would you all give a huge, huge welcome to my friend Bob Russell. Well, that's mighty kind of you. Thank you. I love the worship service today. The spirit of this place is really good. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. There are two things about East Columbus Church that have impressed me. One is the fact that you have such a healthy spirit. And because I think your preacher has been here for almost 20 years. You trace the history of any great church and there is an excellent leader who comes and stays and gives the church a sense of continuity and security. And you were really blessed to have Ron and his family, his wife, his kids here. And uh, thank you for, that speaks well of the church, it speaks well of uh, Ron and his family. Second thing I was impressed with last night was to hear the report about your school. I think the culture being such as it is, one of the greatest things the church can do is to provide an alternative, excellent Christian education for the young people growing up. And I know it is a hassle, it is expensive to have a school, but I think one of the best things your church is doing is this Christian school that you have right now, and I'd encourage you to continue to get behind that and impact as many kids as you possibly can. Now before I begin, I'm going to answer a question that some of you are asking. I'm 79. 
Uh, I'm going to be 80 in October, and I know that's old. Uh, a friend of mine the other day said, I'm pre-planning my funeral, Bob. Would you be willing to do my funeral? I said, I would, but you better hurry up. You don't got much time, time left. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, one of my favorite passages, beginning with verse 11. We're going to talk today about being contagious ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you, again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it is for you. It is for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. And we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died so that all those who live may no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. And here's the verse. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. A little over a decade ago, I took a trip with a group of Christian leaders to China. It was not a mission trip. We went to China to speak with Chinese government officials, pleading with them to ease up on the persecution of Christians in that country. We did not feel that we were very successful, but we tried. While we were there, we had dinner one night with the U.S. ambassador to China. It was in the U.S. Embassy. It was a stately, formal, very reverent dinner. And you would expect it to be, especially in a country as vital to the national interest of the United States as China. But I grew up in a rural area, and I didn't want to make a fool of myself at the U.S. Embassy. So before we went, I did some reading about the role of an ambassador an ambassador is a representative of his home country living in a foreign nation. He doesn't just visit there, he settles down and lives there. An ambassador is a diplomat who attends social functions with the intent of smoothing out relationship 
relationships between the nations. He doesn't isolate himself in the embassy. He circulates among the people. And he or she is an emissary communicating the message that the State Department wants him to convey. He can't make up his own message and say what itchingers want to hear. He's got to convey what the President of the United States wants him to say. And he is a guardian protecting his country's interest in the host nation. He may learn to like the culture where he's living temporarily, but he's always got to be loyal. His primary allegiance has to be to his home country. Now, we are to go out into this world as Christ ambassadors in a culture that is not always favorable to Christianity. We are to represent Jesus Christ in what is now a hostile environment. And we're to smooth out relationships with people so that Christ may be welcomed into the hearts of those who are not yet familiar with him. And we're to communicate the message that Christ wants us to convey. We can't manufacture our own message. We can't just say what people want to hear. We've got to tell them what God says. And God says he commands all men everywhere to repent and turn to Christ that they may be saved. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Paul wrote to Titus and he said, You tell the slaves that live such good lives in the presence of their masters that they will even for their masters make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So we all need to see ourselves throughout the week as representatives of Jesus Christ wherever we have influence. One young, unassuming woman was asking a small group what she did for a living, and she said, I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a checkout girl at Kroger's. <laughs> and that's the way we all ought to see ourselves. Unfortunately, many Christians don't see themselves as ambassadors. They see themselves as illegal aliens trying to keep from being detected. And instead of making Christ attractive, we make him anonymous. And that should not be. Jesus said, you're to be the light of the world. You're to be like a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So as we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, I want you to write down four words. If you're not a note taker, then etch these four words in your mind that will give you an idea of how we can be the most contagious ambassadors for Christ that we can be. The first word is the word transparency. Be transparent about who you are and what you're trying to accomplish in the world. Paul said in verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God. I hope it's also plain to your conscience. There's something attractive about people who are transparent. One of the things I like about your preacher is that there's no phoniness about him. He, he's for real. A, a guy by the name of Steve Brown was a preacher in Key Biscayne, Florida. He had a radio program. But he was notorious for admitting his own transgressions. And a woman in his church, an older woman, wasn't real crazy about him being so transparent. And she said to him, you know, preacher, we've always had ministers who said they were sinners, but you're the first one we believed. Now, we smile at that because we're drawn to people who are transparent. We're a little suspicious of people who are secretive, guarded, hiding something. We gravitate to people who are authentic. You know what we say about them? He's comfortable in, her own, in his own skin. Or we say, she's for real. No pretense about that person. What you see is what you get. Authenticity is 
is attractive. And Paul was authentic. He said, what I am is plain to you. I'm not trying to sneak up on you. He was very open about his mission. He was here to persuade people to come to Jesus Christ. In fact, in the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Paul wrote, We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everybody's conscience in the sight of God. Paul didn't bait and switch. He wasn't deceptive. He didn't water down the word to make it more palatable. He, uh, he said, I didn't come to you with clever in intellectual words. I just tried to make the message as simple as it was delivered to me. I'm just the mailman. One of my favorite stories about the Apostle Paul is in Acts 26 when he was in prison in Caesarea. And Governor Festus called him into the courtroom, brought in uh, King Agrippa and his wife and all the movers and shakers in town. The courtroom was packed. And they asked Paul to defend himself against the charge that he was an insurrectionist. He goes back and recounts his conversion on the Damascus Road. And then he looks straight at King Agrippa, the most important person in the audience. He says, does the king believe these things? They were not done in a corner. I know you believe the prophets. And all of a sudden, the most important man in the room, King Agrippa, second to the apostle Paul, was on the spot. And Agrippa said, Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul didn't say, oh, I apologize, King Agrippa. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. One religion's just as good as another. I'm not trying to impose my values on you, you know. No, Paul said, yeah, King Agrippa, that's what I'm trying to do. I wish that everybody in this courtroom would become a Christian as I am, except for these chains. Paul was so transparent. He said, I'm here to try to persuade you to become a Christian. Now, I am of the opinion that seeker-friendly churches today have made a mistake of trying to camouflage the gospel. They try to sneak up on people and be a little ambiguous about what they're trying to do. They take the name church off the building, and it's the breadbasket of the watering hole. And they're, they maybe start this church service with secular music to make the world feel comfortable when they come in. And they don't preach from the Old Testament because that's too much about the wrath of God. And they don't say anything about sexual purity because that's such a volatile subject. And they don't use too much Bible because it's going to gag people. And instead of take the cross off the building and make it look like a warehouse and no stained glass windows, we're going to kind of sneak up on people. But Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. When we built our last building, it's just off Interstate 64, a massive building. But it was during that time when some were suggesting maybe we ought to just take the cross off the building and make it look more like a warehouse so people would come in more comfortably. But our elders and building committee and me, we said, no, we're going to have a cross on the building. So on top of the building is a big cross. A trucker, shortly after the building was completed, from out of this trucker was from out of town. He was driving down I-64 at night, and he saw this huge building all lit up with cars all around it, and he thought it was a sports event. And then he saw the cross on top of the building. He said, wow, they take their basketball serious in Kentucky. <laughs> well, I hope they realize we take Jesus Christ seriously. And we're not ashamed. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And I want to challenge you as a church, just be transparent about who you are, what you're trying to accomplish. 
Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we're trying to persuade men. Your primary mission is not benevolence. Oh, I see on the screen you've got a lot of benevolence programs, and that's good because Jesus said we're to feed the hungry and care for the sick and provide backpacks for kids going to school. That's not your primary mission. And your primary mission is not social justice, though the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Your primary mission as a church is the same as that of Jesus Christ. You've come to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus said, you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, that's not easy to do because you go about being social justice and doing nice, good things for people. The world will applaud that. But you start trying to evangelize people, uh, they'll resist that. John Stott said evangelism is prickly because we call people to repentance. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, What I received, I passed on to you of first, first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. And by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the truth that has been preached to you. Otherwise you've been believed in vain. So church, you be transparent about why you're here. You've got a lot of missions, a lot of good things. But primarily, you're here to bring people to Christ, to persuade them to become Christians that they may be saved. And by the way, not only as a church, you individually, don't try to disguise. You be very plain to people about what you're trying to accomplish. You know who somebody's done that pretty well uh, is Scotty Scheffler. How many people know the name of Scotty Scheffler? Just a few of you who are golfers. Scotty Scheffler won the Masters last year, came almost out of nowhere. Now he's one of the top golfers in the world. But he seems very poised on the course. But after he won the Masters, a reporter asked him, you didn't seem nervous. Were you nervous? And he's very transparent. He said, I was so nervous when I woke up this morning, I was crying. And he said, my wife said to me, Scotty, if you lose, I'm still going to love you. The Lord's still going to love you. If you win, I'm just going to love you. The Lord's going to love you. Don't be nervous. And he said, that helped settle me down. And you know what Scotty Sheffler said? He said, I'm just here trying to glorify the Lord. Very transparent about who he was. Unashamed as a Christian. And you know that there are young people all across the country who admired that and softened their heart to receive the gospel. Be transparent about who we are, what we're trying to accomplish. The second word I want you to write down is the word intensity. Be passionate. Be intense about your effort to represent the truth. Paul said, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. The message paraphrases that. If I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything that I do. Paul was so on fire for the gospel. Ever since he'd been converted from the Damascus Road, he was passionate about winning people to Christ. In fact, Governor Festus said, Paul, I think your much learning has driven you insane. Paul said, I'm not insane. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Let me warn you about something. If you really catch on to how important Jesus Christ and the gospel are, some in the world accuse you of being out of your mind. You've lost it because you no longer see the world the way they see the world. The world looks at 
possessions and popularity and pleasure. That's important. But the more you understand the gospel, the more you understand it's the things of the heart, the things of the spirit, heaven, eternal life, that matters more. And the world doesn't understand that. And we believe differently than the world believes. We believe as Christians that we're here by divine creation. We have a purpose. We're not here by evolutionary accident. And we believe that every life is sacred from conception on to the tomb. And we believe that God made a man and he made a woman, just two genders. And we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and it constitutes the basic building block of culture. We believe that the Bible is the source of absolute truth. It's not fluid. And we believe that every man inherits the sin nature of Adam. And we gravitate to evil because regardless of how good the environment is, we still gravitate to evil. And we believe the only cure for sin is the atoning death of Jesus on that cross. The only hope for life after death is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe there's a heaven, we believe there's a hell, and we believe there's a hurry. And 60 years ago, when I first started preaching, that was kind of the common belief all across the country. There was a common consensus of right and wrong. But now, you believe those things, and the world thinks you've lost your mind. The world objects and says, it wants to cancel you. Remember what Joy Behar said about Vice President Mike Pence? When the Vice President said he talked to God and he believed God spoke to him, Joy Behar on The View said, the Vice President is mentally ill. Hosea 9-7 says, because your sins are so many and your hostility is so great, the prophet is considered a fool and the inspired person a maniac. Paul says, if you think I'm out of my mind, if you think I'm too serious, you think I'm too intense, I'm doing this for God because this is so important that you come to him and be saved. The world may think you're a hater if you speak up for those things. Derek Johnson said, truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Now we all know that. You know, if you go out in that world and you start talking about what you believe about Jesus and what you believe about right and wrong, uh, the world's going to be many in the world turn you off and accuse you of being divisive and a hater. So you know what we do? We go out in the world and we remain silent. We're not ambassadors at all. We know how to circulate in the world, at our business, at our school, in our neighborhood, at the ball game, make friends, just never bring up anything spiritual, never talk about anything in the culture lest we offend somebody. A guy by the name of Mont Smith was a professor of New Testament at Hope International University in California. He did his doctorate at nearby Fuller Seminary on evangelism. He did an extensive survey and I think made some important conclusions. He asked people in this survey who became Christian, uh, uh, how did you become a Christian? And the vast majority, even in this era where we talk about attractional churches versus missional churches. The vast majority of people came to Christ because a friend invited them to come to church. And they came to church and they kind of liked it and they stuck around. They came back. They heard the gospel. Their hearts were, were softened. And eventually they went forward and gave their life to Christ and were baptized. Well over half. But the interesting question to me was, Mont Smith asked, 
who invited you to church? And I'm going to round the statistics off, except the last one. About 40% were invited to come to church by somebody who was a Christian for less than one year. About 30% were invited by somebody who was a Christian for less than two years. And the percentages continued to decline. And here's the statistic I remember. Less than 2% were invited to come to church by somebody who was a Christian for more than six years. In other words, the longer we're Christian, the less passionate we are about evangelism. The less intentional and intense we are about inviting people and talking to people about the Lord. Now we excuse that and we say, well, the new Christian has more worldly contacts, the new Christian has more enthusiasm, the new Christian hasn't been rebuffed the way we are. But the bottom line is we lose our passion for evangelism and we know how to circulate in the world. We come in the church and we sing these songs and we rejoice about our faith and then we go out and we remain silent. I, uh, I taught a class at church years ago called What We Believe. One evening after the class, the class was entitled, What is Christianity All About? A college girl came up and introduced me to a friend she had brought to the class. She said, I brought my friend to the class in hopes that she would become a Christian the way I did a year ago. But she's got some questions. I said, okay. And this girl asked me a question about evolution. I tried to answer it. She asked me a question about why there were so many different denominations. I tried to answer that. Then she asked me a question about why God permits so much suffering in the world. And I could tell she was asking questions not because she had intellectual doubt. She was asking questions because her heart was hard and she was not yet receptive to the gospel. And we need to be perceptive and not force it down people. So I said to her, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a book called A Case uh, for Christ by Lee Strobel. I'd like for you to read this book, and uh, after you read the book, let's talk. She agreed. But I turned to the college girl who brought her, and I'm telling you, tears were streaming down this girl's cheeks. And she said, looked away, she said, I'm sorry. I just want her to become a Christian so badly I can taste it. And I was convicted. I couldn't remember the last time I wept over somebody who was not a Christian. What about you? Those of you who have been a Christian for more than six years, when was the last time you invited somebody to come to church? When was the last time you prayed over somebody who was not a Christian? When was the last time you shed a tear because somebody's lost? You've got people in your neighborhood. You've got relatives who are as lost as lost can be, and you know it. And you've not said anything to them for years because you don't want to be offensive I guess if I had one challenge for you today is that the Lord would lay again some lost person on your heart and you would be intense enough about their lost condition that you would find some way in the coming days to speak to them share the gospel with them invite them to church be intense about your mission. Here's the third word, and that's the word perceptivity. Be perceptive about the spiritual potential in people. Paul said, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly 
point of view. We once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The world out there will evaluate you by externals. If you're rich, if you're good looking, or if you've accomplished something significant, you're important. Otherwise, not so much. And Paul said, we no longer look at people like that. He said, I once regarded Christ that way. I wasn't very impressed with Jesus because he didn't have the right credentials. But I don't look at him that way any longer. And one of the things that was so wonderful about Jesus is he didn't look at people by their externals. He evaluated by the potential in their heart. Who would have ever guessed that a vacillating personality like Simon Peter would become a rock-like leader in the church? Or a persecutor of the church like Saul of Tarsus would become the missionary, the apostle Paul. Or Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons in her, would become the first to witness the resurrection. Who would ever guess that the woman at the well, who had been divorced five times, was living with a man she wasn't married to, would be the evangelist who would bring all of the city of Sychar to Christ. The world looked at her as a degenerate. Jesus saw her as a potential evangelist. How do you see the people you associate with every day. The uh, people you play ball with, people you work with, guy who comes to fix your plumbing, waiter at the restaurant. How, do you put them in a box and say they would never be interested in spiritual things? They're a, a liberal progressive. They're a dope ad, drug addict, alcoholic. They're just obnoxious. They're a rank Ohio State fan or something. They, they'd never be interested in anything. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, anyone, they can become a new creature. Ken Evans is a businessman in our church, and he had five boys. And so he knew as a, a father, he needed to teach his children the Bible. He looked for some literature to help him. He couldn't find any, so he began to develop his own literature and he would just put down a verse of scripture and then he'd ask his kids a question. They start having discussion. And it was so effective, other people began to ask him for his literature. And he developed an organization, a parachurch organization called Manhood Journey. And he provides this literature for fathers who want to teach their children the Bible and have interaction with them. Well, it became so popular that he quit his job and he became the director of Manhood Journey, providing this material for parents and for leaders of young people. About a year ago, a little over a year ago, Kent got a phone call from a guy who said, my name is Ben Roethlisberger and I have been reading your material and I'm thinking about starting a camp for fathers and their sons and want to talk to you about your material. Well, Kent knew sports and uh, he knew the name of ben, ben Roethlisberger and discovered it. Really, this was the guy who was the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he, he wanted to use his material. And when he told me that, I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania. I'd followed the Pittsburgh Steelers. I knew Ben Roethlisberger had a terrible reputation. He got suspended from the NFL for a little while because allegedly he was abusing women. And, and he didn't have a good reputation. But now, if you saw one of the final games that Ben Roethlisberger played a year ago after the Steelers were defeated. He was asked what he was going to do in retirement. And he said, I'm going to dedicate my retirement to trying to advance the kingdom of God. You know what? Somebody invited Ben Roethlisberger to church. 
or to a small group somewhere. While others said, well, I would never touch that with a 10-foot pole. Somebody saw in him the potential to be transformed by Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, become a new creature. Give people a chance. Many will say no. Some will reject it, but some will believe. So be perceptive about those with whom you share the gospel. Here's the final word, and that's the word ministry. See your task as a ministry of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed us this message of reconciliation. Let's say you have a close couple friend, and you discover that they are horribly in debt. They're in debt, $100,000 credit cards, 18% interest or something. And they're about to be evicted from their house. Their car's about to be repossessed. They're in deep trouble. And you'd like to help them, but you're not a person of resource. But you have a friend who comes to you and says, hey, I've heard about your friends and the financial trouble they're in. I'd like to help out. Here is a check for $200,000 I want you to give to them. $100,000, get them out of debt. $100,000 to give them a jump start in the next chapter of their lives. How long would it take you to get that check to your friends? You couldn't get there fast enough that they could be reconciled to their debtors. Now, the people of that world out there are in debt because of sin. They may not know it, but deep in their heart, they feel guilty. They know something's wrong. And they can never, ever repay their debt. It's too extensive. And Satan is eagerly waiting to collect what is due him. But God through Jesus Christ, paid all the price of every sin through his blood shed on the cross. And he not only pays the debt of our sins, he imputes the righteousness of Christ to us when we accept Christ. Verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's your ministry, your Christ ambassador, to go out there to the people, help them to be aware of their debt and that Christ can forgive them and give them the hope of eternal life and impute his righteousness. So we are not high-pressure salesmen twisting people's arms, making them feel uncomfortable, alienating them. We're not judges like the Westboro Baptist people I saw standing outside of Churchill Downs on Derby Day with signs, you're going to hell because you're going to the Derby. We're ministers, other people. Serving other people, caring for other people, like a pastor of the flock. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but serve. And when a Christian understands, I'm here to love people, to care for people, serve people, then when we make the invitation, they're much more likely to respond. I have two sons. One of my sons is a preacher. The other son is a policeman. We've got love and justice in our home. I went to visit, I, my son is a preacher, is a preacher in Port Charlotte, Florida. And God calls me down to visit him every January and February. <laughs> you got to go where the Lord leads you, you know. You... But I was down there 
in November a couple of years ago, and I went to a football game with my son, high school football game. I could not get over how involved he is in the local high school football program. He, he is not only the chaplain of this team, and I'm telling you, high school football in Florida is big. I went to a game, 5,000 people. But he's not only the chaplain, he's now a paid assistant. He is considered the uh, coach of player development. And he lifts weights with these kids and is on the sidelines as one of the coaches. And I said to him, Rusty, how in the world did you get so involved in this high school football program? I mean, four or five of his coaches come to church. They became Christian. I said, how did you get involved? He said, it's pretty easy, Dad. When I moved here, I just went to the coach. I love football. And uh, I'll be honest with you, he never played a day of high school football. And uh, he said, I just went to the coaches and said, how can we help you? About the second time I went, the coach gave me a list of things that he wished volunteers would do for the school. And the toughest thing on the list was they wished that somebody would launder the football uniforms after the games every weekend. Because the coaches, the assistant coaches, were having to do the laundry every Saturday, and it was a tedious job. So Rusty said, we'll do that for you. He said, so after the game, Dad, I just go in, I collect all the uniforms, I take them home, put them in the entryway of our house, have to fumigate the house afterwards, we pile up all this, these uniforms. And uh, he said, I've got three or four people in the church to help us, and we launder all the football uniforms, take them back to the, the uh, school on Monday. And the coaches appreciate me doing that. At the end of the game, he said, come on, Dad, I want you to help me. So I go into this high school football locker room. Have you ever been to a high school football locker room after a game? I'm telling you, it is not a sweet-smelling savor. Uh, it'll burn the hair out of your nose what it do. And here we are picking up these sweaty, dirty uniforms, sticking them in a sack. I'm a mega church preacher. I'm picking up these dirty uniforms, sticking them in a sack. Hartney's 50-pound bag all the way to the car. We come back for the second load, putting uniforms back in a sack. And the head coach walks by the doorway and he says, thanks, Pastor Rusty. See you in church Sunday. There you got it. It's amazing how you can be an ambassador and how you can soften people's hearts and how they respond to the invitation if you wash feet. If you're humble enough to be a minister and launder uniforms. You are Christ ambassadors to this area. You be authentic. Don't pretend. Be real about what you're trying to accomplish, who you are. And you be intense. You're never going to convince anybody if you're not passionate first yourself. You be intense enough that even though you've been a Christian for more than six years, you're still going to invite people. And you be perceptive. Don't turn people off. Put them in a box. You, you say, if anyone's in Christ, maybe this person can be transformed. And then you serve people. And God will bless you as you seek to be his ambassadors. And you know what? If you'll invite me back in five years, if I'm still living We'll have to have three services to hold all the people who are here.
Let's pray.